1: Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you have missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast. The Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Right now, let's uh, talk to my first guest of this hour, and that's Dr Mike Yeadon. We've spoken to him a couple of times already uh, on the show since the pandemic. He's the former chief scientific advisor uh, with Pfizer, and uh, he has identified for us a number of issues with the testing regime. Now, uh, Mike, um, when we've spoken before, the big thing that lots of people are asking the government about, and I saw this with all the Sunday shows again, is how many people are getting tested? Why aren't we doing more about providing more tests? Why can't people get tests if they're uh, um, you know, they're asymptomatic because we know about the spread of all that and all the different issues. But the thing that the issue that you've been raising and it's something that Carl Hennigan at Oxford University has been raising is whether or not these tests are even worth the paper they're printed on. Um, last week, Matt Hancock, told me that the uh, positive, that the false positive rate for these tests was below one. And he said that was a nice low rate and that was a good thing. Um, you're very concerned and have written a piece uh, over the weekend to point out that he's quite wrong about that, isn't he?
2: Yes, good morning. Good morning, Julia. Yes, I'm afraid he, he is uh, completely wrong about his view that there is no problem at all. So uh, it's important just to explain what do we mean by false positive? Because I think the health sector has got the wrong definition. The, the, the real uh, definition of false positive is what percentage of the entire population that you are sampling, in you know, Pillar 2 screening, um, uh, what, what percentage come up as positive. Now, he said it was just below 1% and lines of evidence say we think he meant probably 0.8. There's all sorts of reasons why he meant that. So if you have 10,000, uh, patients are uh, being screened, it's 0.8 of those, or 80, that will come up as false positive. And I think he thinks it's the percentage positive
1: now, Mike. Mike, apologies. We've he's got we've, we've got a little bit. Of problem. Shocking, Mike, can I saying. can I stop you a second? Because we've got a bit of a problem with your line. We've got a little bit of a uh, 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 it cutting in and out. Um, but I say, let me just let's go over the, the key point here. Is that he the the impression you got from the interview we did with Mike H- Matt Hancock was that he thought that it because of the false positive rate is below one percent, that means that below one percent of the cases that come up positive are false. And you're saying. No, it's not. It's it's, it's, it's it's 1% of all those who you test or 0.8% probably of who you test. And given that we have such a tiny, tiny number of people who are testing positive around the same numbers, it means that something like in the region of nine out of 10 of the tests that are coming up positive, people are told you have COVID, may not actually have COVID at all.
2: Yes, I, that, you've said it exactly correctly. So another way to say it, is if the false positive rate, the the fraction of your tests that come up positive, though they do not have the virus, if that's greater than what's called the prevalence, the fraction of people who've got the virus, it doesn't matter how hard you try and you can't subtract it, you will end up with most of your positives being what are called false positives. They don't have the virus, they're not sick, they won't get sick, and not contagious. And you may have noticed, Julia, and that's possibly why I was thinking about this for over the last few weeks, have you noticed that when we get so-called um, uh, surges or peaks, you know, Leicester and so on, almost no one was ill. And, and, and that figures now because I think between uh, five times and ten times the number of, uh, sorry, only one-fifth or one-tenth actually had the virus. These are the ones that are true positives. And so the problem is if the false positive rate is higher than the prevalence you cannot use the assay. There's nothing you can do to fix it. Uh, and so I he- believe this, 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 let me just finish this one sentence. It may sound controversial, but unless they can fix this assay, I believe they should stop Pillar 2 testing because there isn't an assay that can do other than I have described to generate mostly false positives.
1: So this isn't that this is a peculiarly poor test. It's just this kind of testing in the community. And this is the big difference between testing in hospital and testing in the community. Testing in hospital, we call pillar one testing in the community, pillar two. Now, when you're doing pillar one, you're testing people who are already ill. Uh, They've got symptoms and you're doing uh, testing with medical professionals taking the test and they're going straight to the lab. And that, of course, has a much higher rate of reliability than a test uh, done by non-medically trained people in the community of to a certain extent, a fairly random sample of people because a lot of people are going to get tested who haven't got symptoms themselves. They may think they've been in contact with someone who thinks they've got COVID again, odds are they haven't got it. So it's it's almost it's all it's the number of people and the reason why they're being tested that's also the issue.
2: Yes, you, ha- you said it right. So the uh, pillar one test in hospital, uh, certainly just to take us back to that ghastly month of of March, where we're at the peak of infections. And then in April, about April 10th, we saw the peak of deaths. And then for the last six months, it's fallen continuously. But back in March, uh, I've looked at the data, and fully 30% of the people who were sampled were positive. So now it's 30% who are positive, and then 0.1, 0.8% who are false positive. Basically, the effect there is, instead of 30 out of 100 being positive, which, and they do have the virus, you get 31. Have one, so you can see now the effect of false positives is irrelevant. Yeah. But now, when there's almost no one who's got it, an average member of the, so- of the public, ONS says it's about 0.1%, one in a thousand. 0.8% is this fixed uh, false positive rate. It's generating five to 10 times more false positives than real ones, and earlier in the summer, it was 20 times. So it's got to stop, they, they must not use this assay. It's producing c- catastrophizing. And also an important point, Julie, if I, was, if I was right and the government said, you know, Mike Eden's right, Carl Hennigan's right, let's just pull this test. There's nothing else actually happening of any great note. Yes, there are some in hospital. Yes, there are some dying. But as compared with the thousands dying every day, we're down to about 1% of that. And there actually isn't any fear that the government could provide. So it crosses my mind. I don't know why I'm not making a conspiracy, but if they wanted us to be fearful, the best way to do it is carry on using a test that produces but- mostly false positives, because wherever they travel, that's what they'll get.
1: And this is the thing, and the more testing you do, the more false positives you'll get. In fact, you'll make it more likely there will be more. But with 3,899 cases yesterday, we've been around that 3,000 mark, now the 4,000 mark. The number is going up. But we do know that the proportion of uh, positive cases of those tested um, is also going up. So th- there is there is a greater incidence we think of the virus in the community, and we have seen hospitalizations go up, and we have seen deaths go up. But Professor Carl Henner at Oxford University was saying yesterday, and in an article and on television, that this is the normal seasonal effect of getting in heading into September. We are there is a fear that we are catastrophizing normal seasonal trends, more people will die of flu, more people will die of pneumonia, more people will get colds, more people will get COVID. That doesn't necessarily mean we're entering a second wave.
2: Yes, ab- absolutely. It's uh, absolutely right. I've tried to explain to people, and if people are listening to this and want to know more of the background, uh, it's uh, my new article in Toby Young's Lockdown Skeptics. I'm not a lockdown sceptic the first time. I have been subsequently. I think it's a dangerous, damaging intervention that cuts across people's lives and and worse, it doesn't actually stop people catching the virus. They just get it later. So I don't think it saves a single life, but it deprives us of access to the NHS. Everybody knows that NHS access, they're trying their best, but, but they've been told for some reason to keep the loading of patients light seriously. This is my first claim and it's true. Um, They're keeping the loading on the NHS light which is why you can't get the treatments and surgeries you want because they're planning for a second wave Uh, and Julia if you just give me five seconds I just want to repeat the strong request to, to Matthew Hancock and to Professor Ferguson. So if you believe there's going to be a second wave then you must have evidence for that. What is the underlying evidence that you're resting your case on? Because you seem to think there'll be one and you're planning for it and you're depriving us of the NHS and you're prepared to lock us down to avoid it. Uh, But I've looked and there's no evidence in the literature, whatever. And as Carl Hennigan says, we're definitely not in a second wave at the moment. When you look at the data, honestly, uh, there are more cases, but for the reasons Carl Hennigan said, I think at most we're in a second ripple.
1: Okay, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Mike Eden, former chief scientific advisor with Pfizer, looking at those figures. Uh, Really appreciate you joining us. Uh,
3: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads
0: and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
3: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real
0: Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about
3: work. Work.
1: Let's talk to Sir Graham Brady now. Good morning to you.
3: Good morning, to Jay.
1: Um, now, we we saw the extraordinary emergency powers that the government took after votes in parliament uh, uh, because of the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic earlier in the year. And I think there were people, there were some people in the minority who were very unhappy about those powers. I think the vast majority of us felt, you know, the government needs to have the powers to do what they need to do to get us through this. Um, many months on knowing a lot more about the pandemic, knowing a lot more about the virus treatments and and the death rate. um, Lots of people are now very concerned. What are your concerns in terms of the government's use of emergency powers?
3: Well, I think you're absolutely right. First of all, back in March, when Parliament was about to go into recess for Easter, when there was uh, real concern that what we could have seen uh, would be the NHS critical care capacity being overwhelmed. uh, I think with reluctance, most members of parliament were very happy to give the government the powers that might be needed uh, to respond uh, short order to uh, an immediate challenge. Uh, But that was of course presented at the time as a short-term emergency uh, measure. Uh, Thankfully uh, my colleague David Davis put an amendment at that point which made sure that these powers had to be renewed every six months rather than every two years as the government was initially uh, requesting. And that's why we are going to have a vote and debate in Parliament next week on the 30th of September uh, for the renewal of the powers. My argument is simply that uh, government shouldn't be allowed to govern by decree. These powers, if they are necessary, they should be debated first in Parliament and voted on by Parliament on behalf of the people that we represent, because they have been some massive intrusions in our personal freedom, family life, and have had a massive effect on people's livelihoods as well. Uh, So I think we we really just have to make sure that Parliament is able to do its job properly.
1: Well, indeed, and and again, the the MPs voted for these measures on the basis that they were justified at the time. We knew very little about the virus. The information we did have from China and Italy was really very very scary. We were fearful of a much higher death rate than it's turned out to have. Uh, and uh, and of course, um, there was this fear that if we didn't act then and immediately very strictly, that we were going to be facing uh, you know really very 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 serious problems. We now know, of course, also the the other side of the coin, don't we? The, the the cost of lockdown, the health implications of an of a NHS that's turned purely to being a, a COVID health service instead of a, a national health service. Um, and we, n- we now know both sides. We also know also there is no such thing as, inverted commas, the science which we've been hearing about, that we follow these signs. There are now quite a lot of dissenting views on, on where we are right now and what's going to happen and how we deal with it. Um, do you think that the government you know, just needs to simply justify with their own arguments, their own evidence, what they want to do? And do you think Parliament will acquiesce?
3: Well, I, I, I agree with, with all of that. And, of course, it is entirely possible uh, that Parliament will nod things through. That uh, we you know, I heard the shadow Chancellor on the BBC earlier this morning uh, who didn't appear to know whether that she thought that Parliament ought to uh, vote and, and debate these things or not, uh, uh, which is a, a real concern. I think the opposition has been truly pathetic in this, uh, in not insisting that Parliament can hold government to account. But I, I suppose the crucial point, Julia, is that Uh, This isn't just, you know, it is an important principle that Parliament ought to be consulted, but it's not just a principle. Uh, There's a very practical purpose, which is that if you have those debates in Parliament, ministers are forced to give their justification. They're forced to give answers as to why they're doing things, what the measures are meant to achieve, and then set out. Uh, the criterion that will be used to judge whether they've been successful or not. And for instance, two weeks ago when we had the so-called Rule of Six uh, being uh, talked about, it was it was leaked on the Tuesday, it was announced on the Wednesday, not in Parliament. Uh, the Thursday was very light business, just general debates in the House of Commons. There's no reason why we couldn't turn that into a full day's debate and a vote which would have forced ministers to explain why six, not eight or 10, uh, why uh, small children are included in England, whereas the Scots, in my view, have made a very sensible decision to exclude, uh, to exclude uh, small children uh, from the numbers. Uh, and. And it's uh, so, you know, all those things could have been drawn out. Uh, they weren't because there was no debate.
1: Do you, do you understand why um, faith in the government and trust in the government's ability to handle this pandemic has actually fallen? I mean, at one point, it was incredibly sky high. There was incredible national unity. I and mean, One of the things that, you know, the only a few good things could come out of something as awful as a pandemic was that we could actually come together again as a country after the awful divisions we've seen in recent years. And then that seems to have quickly fallen away, um, really mass distrust now, even by many people who who you know may have voted for this government, who who supported the first lockdown, but a feeling that the, the, the government is sort of running scared that they're, they're scaring the, the population into uh, being panicked about stuff which may just be seasonal rises and the like, as many experts are saying, in terms of the coronavirus. And then they're reacting to that panic by being told you need to do something. So they're doing something and creating more panic and more seriousness. Instead of following scientific and medical advice that would perhaps give them a more nuanced route through. Um, do you do you understand why a lot of people just don't have faith in the government anymore?
3: Well, this is why I'm trying to do the government a favour, uh, because it doesn't work for government to make decisions behind closed doors, uh, to listen to some people and not to other people, and to, to try to cut off any discussion about it what we need to do if people are going to remain solidly behind these measures we need to make sure that they know that these things have been discussed that their voices have been heard that their representatives have been heard and you know the huge number of businesses especially small businesses but you know my constituency very close to Manchester Airport, huge number of people in the aviation sector as well who are going to lose their jobs and their livelihoods and might end up losing their homes as a result of policies that are being taken. It is simply not acceptable for ministers to do that by decree. Uh, It's got to be part of a national conversation and that is what parliament is for. Okay,
1: thank you very much indeed for joining us. Sir Graham Brady, Conservative MP, uh, Chair of the 1922 Committee of Backbench MPs.
0: Talk
3: Radio
2: Breakfast with Julia hardley Brewer and The Times. Know your
1: times. Right, well, let's welcome Transport Secretary Grant Shapps uh, to the show. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, We face a very, uh, very difficult, stressful week, I think, for a lot of us, not just the government. 11 o'clock this morning, Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance are going to give a press conference, uh, taking no questions, I know, uh, telling us what the situation is. Tomorrow we're going to hear from the prime minister. And we're told by one paper today that the prime minister is expected to give the nation one final chance to prove it can follow the rules and suppress a second wave. Um, Why does the government think that treating us like naughty children and putting us all on the naughty step? Uh, is the way to talk to grown adults who uh, are are voters in this country.
4: Morning, Julia. Well, actually, I I present that completely the opposite way around. Why does the government think that putting scientists out there, medical experts to um, set it out as it is with the data, with the information might be a good idea? Answer, because it is a good idea. uh, And it is actually, I think, the properly grown up way to go about these things. Other countries perhaps aren't fortunate enough to have scientists like this who can set things out in this kind of detail i had a briefing with them over the weekend actually and uh, uh, you know it it, it it struck me at the time we're very fortunate to have people who you know spend their entire lives studying this stuff and able to present it to us and allow people to Um, see it for themselves, not filtered through politicians, but directly. And I think that's a very good thing.
1: Well, we've always been told we need to follow the medical advice. We need to follow the science. Now, we we know there is no such thing as the science. In fact, the scientific method involves us not believing there is just the science. You have to question things. Very eminent people like Professor Carl Hennigan, a professor at Oxford University, who's twice now from his research managed to change government uh, data gathering and policy on on issues because he's been able to identify uh, flaws in, in the reasoning. He has said in an article Yesterday, the Prime Minister may as well be using the planets to guide us because the the, the, the advice is so catastrophic. And he says the scientists who he is taking advice from are doom mongering. He says we are well past the peak um, uh, and that we are not facing there's no evidence right now of a second wave, and that actually not only should we not have a second lockdown right now, but that actually may cost more lives. Um So when we're told that, you know, we're following the science, shouldn't we be taking taking into account all of the scientific views and the scientific evidence?
4: Which is why we have um, that sage organisation, that scientific advice uh, for us from a very wide range uh, of different advisors to the government. Um, And ultimately, you have to listen to that advice and then you have to make decisions. And that's what leadership's about. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that those decisions are easy or straightforward or take themselves uh, for example, they the, the don't. You have to apply you know, the best logic you can to the best data and the best evidence that you can possibly get. But I'm very mindful of the fact that back in, uh, I can remember the date exactly, the 25th of July uh, when I was in Spain uh, and I put that country into uh, our quarantine list. A lot of people said, that's ridiculous. You know, Spain's doing absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. They're about six weeks ahead of us. And what's happened subsequently in Spain is that the number of daily cases have continued to rise. Hospital admissions have uh, risen and now deaths are rising as well. And, you know, Nobody wants to be in that position. No, but we, but no, I no, think...
1: no, that's a silly thing to say, but with all due respect. We're all going to be in that position. We're in that position every September, October, November, December, January, February. We we see, as Professor Carl Hennigan has pointed out, seasonal patterns. We are going to see more people die from coronavirus in the coming months. That is of course what is going to happen. Doesn't mean okay. it's a second wave, and it doesn't mean it justifies a second lockdown.
4: Obviously, it wouldn't have happened last um, autumn because um, it it didn't exist. But it is the case, I think, that a responsible government has to uh, weigh up the data and take decisions. Now, you and I, I think, will both agree that we want to keep schools open. We want to keep people able to go to work. We don't want to go back to the kind of lockdown that we had at the beginning, where it was actually illegal to leave your house for any one but four reasons and all this sort of stuff. We don't want to go there. But in order not to get there, we do have to listen to the scientists. And I agree with you, bit like economists, you'll find different views among scientists as well. And that's why we have these advisory panels with the SAGE group, which will provide um, different estimates based on all the best uh, data collected. And we'll listen to that. And then we will um, say, as, as you mentioned, the prime minister is going to speak later in the week. Um, we'll we'll say what we think needs to happen next. But as I think will be made clear this morning, um, we are at this tipping point and at a very crucial moment in handling this uh, pandemic.
1: Well, again, ex- except we are not seeing exponential growth. Yes, figures have gone up in the uh, in the last week or so. We've seen a doubling every seven days. But again, that is not exponential growth. Um, and this, problem, this prospect of a two-week lockdown in October, this circuit breaker, we're told, there's no scientific or medical evidence that something like that would work, quite apart from the fact that that would simply push any cases that were, that would just push them in later into winter and therefore more likely to be more serious when it is colder. And and within two weeks, one wouldn't see the effect of that uh, that anyway because there's a three-week delay on people getting infected and people dying. So... uh we're clearly not following science right now. It's quite clear that the government is being led by the nose, by the fear that it's, it's engendered in society. So people are terrified. The average person in this country thinks 7% of the population has died of COVID, when in fact it's 0.07%. People have been told to be terrified, so they are rightly terrified, and what a surprise. Then they're asking the government to take action. Shouldn't the government, shouldn't the medical advisers, the science advisers, shouldn't the prime minister, the health secretary, your colleagues and you be telling the government, telling, telling the people to put things in perspective, to point out that more people are going to die of pneumonia and of flu this week by a huge factor than they are of COVID. And that the facts are like in Spain, we have actually seen a plateauing of deaths, even though it's going kind of a plateauing and that we should actually be a bit calmer looking at the facts and stay calm until we know what we need to do.
4: I mean, look, I, I absolutely agree. We need to keep, you know, it's lives and livelihoods. We need to keep the economy open and we don't want to go back to the kind of original lockdown. But you mentioned in your opening remarks there uh, that this is not exponential and went on to say that cases are doubling every it's seven not
1: exponential. days.
4: Uh, well every seven days uh, it's a long time since I did maths but every seven days repeated over not very long period of time gets you to very very large numbers of course so that's what happens when things keep doubling like that and I don't want to see that happen and it's not in anybody's interest to see that happen Uh, it will cause uh, all manner of uh, of problems which would quickly um, exceed deaths from other other, um, uh, causes but you're right there is a delicate balance to be reached which is why uh we don't want to have a uh, full lockdown and we'll do anything that we can to uh, avoid that uh, but we know we look we know much more about this virus now than we did back in the in in the early part of this year don't we I mean, the one thing we know is how it spreads and it spreads when you're close to other people uh, when you don't wash your hands keep your hands away from your face maintain a certain amount of space and distance, and, and, and if so there are seven of you, are, that, and if there are seven of you or know more, because
1: no, it doesn't spread within six people, but once there are seven, then it's terrible, and we all, we all, no, that, 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 no, that, no that's the no advice no we've got no, from the government, isn't it?
4: No, no, no one's pretending that that, that, that that's. Well, then that, why have we got
1: the rule of six?
4: Because you've got to draw a line somewhere, right? And you've got to make it straightforward draw enough. Draw it at
1: ten. And draw it at fifteen.
4: I've, I've been on your program before, and I'm the first to admit there is no magic number at which, um, you know, if you only do this, it'll be fine. We do know. That each person that you add into that group of six, so if you have seven, eight, nine, ten, then you will, in fact, exponentially—I uh, think I'm right in saying—but certainly very dramatically increase the spread of the virus if you expose more households um, to it, because that's just the simple maths of the situation. So you know you've got to draw a line somewhere. Belgium did five, and they were successful in getting uh, what looked like a second peak down again. Uh, other countries have been much more lax, and I see this every week when I study the international travel um, data uh, and we look at how other countries have responded and without fail it's the countries who have not responded, not done so early. Who end up later having to respond? Um,
1: I, I can't tell you how much you are, you are wrong on that. Spain, the country that had the strictest lockdown in uh, Europe, children weren't even allowed out of the house, not even for all hour's walk for six weeks. They are the ones seeing the highest growth. They've had the highest death rate. Which so, country? So which got country? No, no. Which? Which? No, I, I I realize we've got different timetables. Which country currently has the lowest rate of transmission? Sweden, which did not have a formal lockdown. Why aren't we learning the lessons from the countries that have done things things, differently?
4: Two two things here. First of all, on Spain, you're right about their initial lockdown. It was then eased and uh, the nightclub started opening in Madrid and so on and so forth. And back on the 25th of July, uh, when I was there uh, briefly, uh, you you know, uh, it was quite clear that things were moving very fast. And if you then don't respond, you end up in the situation now where... Um, the daily deaths have um, started to go up very significantly. And you mentioned Sweden. Sweden ha- has a completely different um, setup. One thing is the case. One, one thing for sure, there, guidance in Sweden is treated like it is the law. And so uh, it's not the case that they didn't put measures in place. They called them guidance, but they were actually pretty strict. whilst and
1: restaurants stayed open. Children yes, stayed at school. But, but also very different. The comparison.
4: The comparison you should make with Sweden isn't what's happening in the United Kingdom, uh, but what's happening in the countries around which have similar demographics and similar geography to Sweden. And they're doing significantly worse they, than the countries around them. There were uh, different because, reasons for that. Because their geography that. is very, very different from the United Kingdom, where we have a much more dense population. So some of these, some of these sort of, you know, oh, Sweden didn't do anything. Yes, they no, did. No, no, I didn't say that. People just followed I didn't it. It, that say that. The I
1: know this is, but this is the whole point. And this is the crude characterization that we're having, where we don't have a sensible debate. They did not do nothing. They, were, they trusted the yeah. Swedish people to do the right thing, do the sensible thing, which is what most people did. Let me ask you also about the testing. All of the questions I see in the media right now are all about we need more testing. Why haven't we got more testing? Why aren't we testing more people in the community? Why aren't we getting tests back quicker? Has there been any conversation in Cabinet that you are aware of, or you've been part of, about the false positive rate and the eminent eminent statisticians and eminent uh, uh, you know uh, epidemiologists are pointing out that the test we are using in the community not the pillar one testing in hospitals testing in the community may well have a false positive rate of 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 we well, were told it's below 1% by Matt Hancock last week which means that 9 out of 10 of the positive cases of covid we are finding in the community when we do random testing when anyone just puts themselves forward will be wrong. They will not be people who've got coronavirus. So we have got testing going up 3,899 cases, huge number of cases. But actually, nine out of 10 of those may well be false positives. Has there been any discussion about this serious concern in Cabinet?
4: Well, of course, the uh, the way that that testing is done is actually by the Office of National Statistics. People don't put themselves forward. The Office of National Statistics contact people no, randomly No, no, and no ask that's them not what I'm talking about.
1: No, no, I'm not talking about the data. There's the survey. a survey dating. I'm oh, talking sorry, about sorry. people being told, "Go and get a test if you've, you know," as Matt Hancock said mm. in July, "If you, if you're in any doubt." People who, that when in, in local areas where there has been a high rate, people councils leafleting saying, "Go and get a test." People being worried because their kids have been in a classroom with someone who's gone home with a cough. Those people, that testing, nine out of 10 of those tests that are positive are very, very likely to be false positives. Has there been any discussion of this in Cabinet? And if not, why not? Well,
4: because the medical experts will, will uh, provide evidence on that. And there have been some very interesting things along the lines of what you're saying. For example, the NHS test and trace have carried out uh, 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 studies of people who are actually attending uh, tests. So they've spoken to 24,000 people, 6,000 of whom uh, didn't have any symptoms at all, but were going for tests. So if we're talking about you know, how we're ending up in a situation where uh, some of these tests are under a lot of pressure, it is important that you're only going for a test if you've been asked to do so by a medical Professional in order has, to has ensure we have enough tests available.
1: Has there been any discussion of the false positive rating cabinet? Has, has this uh, been no, raised not, by I anybody been
4: involved in a, in a false positive um, discussion? Uh, but I'm not the health secretary, oh. and it's not been a generalised. Well, wait,
1: well, no, no. When we shut down our, when we shut down our aviation AV industry, when we shut down our, our our nighttime economy, when we shut down people's ability to have any contact with their families with the rule of six and with a possible lockdown, this is a matter for the entire cabinet. We're not getting proper parliamentary scrutiny, which thankfully is going to start next week so graham brady leading that um but is there any scrutiny in the cabinet of someone saying hold on a minute some experts are pointing out and there's no statistical evidence that these people are wrong that nine out of ten of the of the positive cases we are identifying may actually be false and we're basing an entire policy on false data
4: yeah i don't think we're uh, I, I don't think that's correct i don't think we're uh, basing our entire policy on on false data, as as you've suggested there, uh, I'm slightly confused by your figures, but I'm going to go away and check them because you also said that Matt Hancock said it's probably one percent. Uh, this is no, positive. but I'm so sorry. This is my policy.
1: 10. This is a policy that's being made by people who don't understand the statistics and the science. Well, on, I can. You, you, I, well, I'll do. I've got to, your. I've got your phone number. I will send you the document to explain yeah, do, to well, you what this false positive paradox is
4: you? You've said to me uh, that Matt Hancock said it's one in one hundred. You've told no, me it's nine out no. of ten. No, nice. this is the
1: entire problem, Mr. Shapps. This is a problem. People don't understand what this means. If one, if the false positive rate is below one percent, one percent, that means that the oh, when you have a very low prevalence in the in the country and lots of people who aren't aren't having symptoms are getting tested, this is pre, this is really basic statistical stuff. It means well, that the false positive rate you. is nine out of ten.
4: I'll tell I'll tell you what I do for you, Julie, because I have spoken to um, the uh, chief medical and chief scientific okay. officers of the weekend. We were briefed by them. Uh, in uh, last week's Cabinet. I will specifically raise this point Thank if you, you send me that text. Keep,
1: I, I will, and please get back to us. I'd love to hear from you. I've always appreciated your us. Grant Shapp's Transport Secretary kept him far too long, I know. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10.
3: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend.